welcome to faith this beautiful beautiful morning and uh, let me encourage you to stay for the soul food uh, as a soul, the last soul food of the season um two offerings one is the uh, the we're going through the sermon on the mount particularly through the lens of the salt and light that we're salt and light in the world that's that's downstairs and the last installment, and, and, and upstairs, we've been dealing with the history of the church. Today we'll do, talk about the history of the Presbyterian church and history of the black church in America as we wind up that series. Last week in that, in that series, I mentioned a 19th century revivalist named uh, uh, Charles G. Finney. I first ran into that name in 1979. I was doing an urban project, not here in Baltimore, that was later, in Washington, D.C., in, in Anacostia, the neighborhood where I actually grew up. I was doing an urban project with the university that year, that summer, and um, it was at the Anacostia uh, 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 Gospel Mission, the Gospel Chapel, I think they called it. It was a it was a it was a joint venture of the Assemblies of God, who had this mission church, and InterVarsity. We had some, some a few people of us there, some staff and students, and and there was another ministry, and I don't remember what the where they were from, but they were a very, very uh, on fire, very aggressive evangelistic team. And I don't remember where they were from or what their name was, but I do remember the differences of opinion that we had about how to do this ministry, <laughs> about evangelistic method, as I was learning and growing. They wanted people to know Jesus, and so did I. That was great. But they were insistent on certain methods of making that happen that I was becoming uncomfortable with as I was growing in my own understanding of, 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 of the faith. Things that were turning me off. Things that I grew up with. The old-fashioned um, 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 altar call, invitation every week, which I grew up with, which God has used. God, I got saved that way. I was trying to wonder if you need to do that every week. But they insisted that the way that seekers come to know God is to be in a service and to get emotionally connected with, with, with the message of the word of God and at the moment, at the very end of the sermon you had to have them come forward sit at the mourner's bench and have an experience with God that was very emotional sometimes with other languages those kind of things were part of what they were insisting were essential for people to come to know God and uh, I was trying to challenge that a little bit although it wasn't Assemblies of God church and if you know anything about the Assemblies of God that's, that's kind of where they are. One of, the, one of the brothers, I'll never forget, he said, you know what, these ideas aren't new. In fact, there's a man you ought to start studying. His name is Charles Finney, and he was a revivalist, and he embraced these kind of methods in the, in the 1800s. It was the first time I heard of Charles Finney. And uh, as I went to went, and I studied more, I know that he was part of what they called the new measures of revivalism that happened in the Second Great Awakening in, in the United States. He was, and I learned that he was a lawyer who got converted, and he was a Presbyterian. Yes, he was. You know, yet, uh, I, Finney, Finney though, though most of his new measures I have a lot of problems with, he did get one thing right. <laughs> you know, no matter what you think about the sovereignty of God and, and the free will of man to make a choice for God, God brings people to moments of decision he does that moments where they must choose moments where the spirit of God is drawing urging driving beseeching them to bow to God and trust their souls to Jesus God does that and he doesn't just do it once I believe 
He doesn't do it once and leave us alone. No, he, he continually wants fellowship with us. And if we're sloppy in our fellowship, with he, he draws us, he calls us, he urges us to repent, to come back. Our passage today has a very familiar verse that's often used in those revivalistic contexts. That's why I began that way. It's verse 20. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You've heard that verse if you know anything about the scriptures. Words of Jesus. What we're going to see is that this verse is, is quoted primarily by, by John here in chapter 3 as a challenge to the church, not to the seeker. A challenge to God's people, not to those outside. Yes, God urges seekers, but he also urges his children to have the kind of fellowship, that kind of relationship with him. Our series is Letters to the Seven Churches. This is the last installment of that. In Revelations 2 and 3, Jesus is commending and challenging the disciples who are fearful, they're frustrated, they're, they're, because of persecution that's about to break out, and yet they're trying to remain faithful to, the, to Jesus, to the Lord, and, and trying to hold on in the midst of mounting opposition. We're asking ourselves, what would he say to us at Faith Christian Fellowship? For what he would say... What, what, what things in our life would he say, well done, good and faithful servants? Keep it up. You're doing well. And in what areas would he rebuke us, warn us, challenge us, telling us to get it together? Today we're going to look at uh, the seventh. Uh, John Stott has a great review of, of, um, of these um, seven letters. Let me read this paragraph here. In each of the seven letters, Christ lays emphasis on a different mark which would characterize a true and living church. The Ephesian Christians are urged to return to their first fresh love for him, while the Christians of Smyrna are warned that if they do not, comp if they do not, do comp do not compromise, they will, suffer su they will surely suffer. The church in Pergamum is to champion truth in the face of error, and the church in Thyatira is to follow the right follow righteousness in the midst of the evil that's around them. In Sardis, the need is for inward reality behind the church's outward show. And before the Philadelphia church, the risen Lord has set an open door of opportunity for the spread of the gospel, and he bids them to step boldly through it. Now, this seventh letter is addressed to the church in Laodicea and combines with a fierce denunciation of complacency, a tender appeal for wholeheartedness. The city is about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. You can't see it on the map that I had, so that's where that is. There's the, the postal route in Asia Minor went to the, went counterclockwise and back around the other side would come to this last of the seven cities. So today we're going to look at the seventh of the seven letters. If you have a scripture, uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14 to end of the chapter. <coughs> To the angel of the church in Laodicea, see it right, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. <clears throat> I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm <clears throat> and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God's word. My title is simply, Jesus is Calling. Jesus is Calling. You know, Jesus is Lord. He's King. He's Lord. He gives commands as Lord. And as Lord, he certainly has demands. Not merely suggestions, you know. But Jesus is not a bully. He sovereignly puts us in the place where we long, we desire to be saved. Where we long, we desire to grow and know him. He doesn't ignore our human will, no. He orchestrates our lives in such a way that in our hearts we want to grow. We want to know him. We want to be saved. My theme is that Jesus urges us all to be mature, healthy, grace-filled disciples. He urges us. He longs for that. And he's calling us to three things. We'll see in the passage. First, he's calling us to, a, to, to works that are empowered by his grace, He's calling us to genuine repentance, and he calls us to personal fellowship. Verses 14 to 16, Jesus calls us to a life of grace-empowered works. Works not to be saved, but works that are empowered by his grace because we are saved. In verse 14, it's clearly Jesus speaking. He calls himself the true witness, the the beginning or head of, of God's creation. That's him. He's identifying himself there. In verse 15, he says, he says, I know your works. I know your works. You know, Jesus knows. In each of these seven letters, he says, I know. We see that because he does. He's the sovereign one who knows. He's, he knows that we're neither hot nor cold, he says, to the Laodiceans. You're lukewarm. This, this, he's talking about water. There's a lot about water here in the background, though we don't see the word. Water is, water is very important. I've got some water right here. I might go to it once or twice here. Water is used for, for drinking, it's used for health, it's used for, for, for cleansing, it's used, um, uh, it, it, it's used uh, for, for power. You have steam engine, you have uh, hydroelectric power. It's used for transportation, the, the, the cruise boats, the, the, the steamships. It, it, it's used for recreation, people play in it, they swim in it. It's used for protection, the firemen, what would they do without water? Lots of water, it comes out the hose real fast. Water, used for many things. Uh, they needed they they need water back then, of course. There, there is sometimes a problem of too much water. We've seen this week some of the pictures of, of, of Tropical Storm Cindy, reminding us that sometimes too much water is devastating uh, to an area. In this passage, there's, a, there's another problem with water. It, Jesus raises the issue of, of the temperature of water. The temperature of water, it's lukewarm. Water is lukewarm, he says, and, that, and that's a problem. That's a problem. Have you ever been working or working out and you need, you, 
you, you long for a nice, cold, refreshing cup of water, and you, you drink it, and it's just room temperature. It's a downer. It's a bummer, isn't it? <laughs> you want something that's refreshing and cold. It's a big letdown. You're, you're eager, anticipating a, a nice, cold beverage. And you might just spit it out of your mouth if it surprises you. That's the image that Jesus has here. That's the image that we have here in, in this text. Jesus says, I, I, I wish you were refreshing. You're lukewarm. You, you make me want to puke. You make me want to throw up. You make me want to regurgitate. Whatever verb you want to use. That's what Jesus says about his people who claim to follow him in Laodicea. It's quite an indictment. This is the only of the seven churches where Jesus has no words of commendation. In each of the seven, the six prior ones, he said something positive about them. Not here. Not here. Jesus knows his people. He looks at the lives of his people, and sometimes he is so disappointed, he wants to go grab a bag. Think of it. Poetus writes this, Christ begins his evaluation of the Laodiceans by saying that they are neither hot nor cold. Laodicea's water supply had to be provided from a distant source through pipes. The resulting water, because we're so far, was lukewarm and barely drinkable. By contrast, the neighboring town of Hierapolis had medicinal hot springs. You can do something with hot water, can't you? tea and coffee. Hot water's good. You can do something with that. And neighboring Colossae was supplied by a cold mountain stream. You can do something with some cold water too, can't you? Yeah. Christ urges the church to be refreshing, cold, or medicinally healing, hot, rather than like the Laodicean water supply. You're lukewarm, he says. You are lukewarm, and there's nothing you make me want to throw up. What a picture. The Lord is so gracious to tell them that, isn't he? Rather than let them just go on in that, in that, in that situation. And when we truly come to understand that God's grace forgives, even our apathy, and that's what they have, they're apathetic when we understand that the grace of God comes and challenges our apathy, we, we are melted away. We start getting excited again about the Lord who saves us and who is saving us despite of how we're not living as we should be living. God is most concerned that we have hearts that are right with him and works that flow from that. He's not concerned about their good works, but the fact that, they're, that they're, their works, are, they become apathetic, even as they've gone through the routine of doing good works. Their hearts are cold towards him. When we repent, we're restored back to relationship with God. We become sons and daughters of God. We, 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 our fellowship, relationship is restored. First John chapter 1 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He reminds us again, the last verse, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. John reminds us that all of us fall short 
and need the cleansing blood, the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ applied to our lives. And when we do that, we, we're restored into fellowship, relationship with the true living God. When we fail in our lives as disciples of Jesus, uh, uh, does not mean that we're no longer children of God. It doesn't mean that. It means we're not experiencing the privileges of sonship, the experiences of being uh, the, the privileges of being a child of God. Remember the prodigal son went off to the far country, Luke chapter 15? He was, he was way in the far country, not acting like he was a son of the father, but he, guess what? He was still a son of the father. When he came to his senses, he came back to his father, and his father said, welcome back, son. It's a picture. Those who go back, who go home, <laughs> who return and repent and are restored to fellowship. When we, when we restore back, we, we, we gain that awareness that indeed we are sons and daughters of God. One of the blessings of sonship and daughtership is the assurance of God's presence, the assurance of his presence with us. The Holy Spirit does that ministry in our lives. God, God calls us, he calls us to works, not, not just works that, that, that are, are seeking to have favor with God, but to works that come because we understand and are resting in the favor that we have with God. The Laodicean church had it all out, of, all out of whack. The second thing in the passage, verses 17, 18, and 19, Jesus calls us to a life of genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. Again, they had, they were, they had affluence, they were apathetic, and there's a deception, a blindness that Jesus raises here. Look at verse 17. You, you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So tell us, Jesus, what you really think about us. I mean, that's, <laughs> what an indictment. Don Stott says this, Laodicea was known for its prosperity. So opulent were its citizens that when the earthquake of 60 A.D. devastated the whole region, the city was promptly rebuilt without any appeal to the Roman state for customary subsidy. They said, that's okay, Rome, we got this ourselves. <laughs> the local inhabitants were proud of their city as a mercantile banking center. They boasted of its famous medical school connected with the temple of um, Esculapius, whose physicians prepared a Phrygian powder for the cure of ophthalmia. They also had the manufacture of cloth, garments, and carpets from the wool of the local sheep. The pride of Laodicea was infectious. Stott says, Christians caught the plague. The, the spirit of complacency crept into the church and tainted it. So this proud city, in the midst of this proud city, the believers became proud, proud of their city, which there's a sense of, of civic pride that's healthy, but it was clearly over the top. Hendrickson says, it was the home of millionaires, a great commercial and financial center, a city of bankers. There were theaters, a stadium, a gymnasium with bathhouses. Verse 18, there's imagery here based on the economics of this very affluent city. Look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may be not be seen and sap to, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Stott says, Christ describes them as blind beggars and naked beggars. Beggars despite their banks blind despite the Phrygian powders of their medical school, 
and naked despite their clothing factories. That's, what, that's why he, that verse is there. See, the economy was thriving. It all looked well because the, the buying and the selling of precious jewels, the, the production of clothing and the, and the medicinal eye salve. But, but Jesus turns the table and says, don't depend on yourself, but on me. Don't depend on your economy, but on me. Don't depend on, your, on, on your, your, the, the productivity of, of your city, but depend upon me, church of Laodicea. Find your joy, find your identity in me. And he says to us, Faith Christian Fellowship, where are you finding your joy and your identity and your peace in your outward surroundings, which can go at any moment, or in him, the true and living God? Verse 19, look at his words here. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Repent means to turn. Make a U-turn. Change your mind, change your heart, change your affections. Repenting before God changes us on the inside. All those who have been born again by the Spirit of God are in one sense a miracle because they've been changed by God on the inside. It takes a radical action on our point, and it takes a radical commitment on his part to get the process going. Remember the story in the Gospels of Jesus uh, who talked to the, the rich young ruler? Remember that story, Jesus, man, man comes to Jesus, how can I have eternal life? Jesus gives some great answers, some interesting answers. I want to go into all that. But at the end of that, that conversation, the man went away because he couldn't, he couldn't do what Jesus said do, which is sell all you have and follow me. He went to follow me. That's the key thing. And then at the end, Jesus then has a, a, a conversation with Peter, representing the other disciples. If this guy, this rich guy can't get saved, who can be saved? And Jesus said, it's impossible with man, but not with God. Not with God. God can save anybody. It's impossible with man, but not with God. The, Wilcox says the fact that he rebukes her shows that he still loves her, the church. He's rebuking the church because he loves this church. The threat of total rejection is that she will not, not repent, is, is balanced by the promise of total reinstatement if she does repent. So, so, so he's urging, he's pleading. Many look at this passage, by the way, uh, of him knocking on the door as an allusion to, to Song of Solomon chapter 5. If you just look over that passage at some point where, 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 where the, the groom is knocking on the door hoping the bride will let him in. Many believe that's, that, that's the illusion here. And so he challenges us as he challenges the people of Laodicea. Come, come to him. Come to him. Start says, they're poor, but Christ has gold. They're naked, but Christ has clothes. They're blind, but Christ has eye salve. Let them no longer trust in their banks, their Phrygian eye powders, and their clothing factories. Let them come to him. He can enrich their poverty. He can clothe their nakedness, and he can heal their blindness. He can cover their sin and shame and make them fit to partake of the inheritance of the saints in light. He can enrich them with life and life abundant. In a word, he can save them. So he pleads with them, come. Come. John here is mirroring the invitation of Isaiah chapter 55, the passage that we heard in the scripture reading. Remember how it began? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Come. Come and be put right with God. 
It's an old revivalist hymn where we, 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 we sense and feel the urging, the, the plea, the desire of God. It's, the, the author was naming Will Thompson, 18, uh, 1800s. And it's a song that many of us say, ah, it's a little, it's a little too, it, it's too much pleading going on in this song. Let me, let me read the words and then let, let's talk about it. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading? Pleading for you and for me. Why should we linger and heed not his mercies? Mercies for you and for me. Time is now fleeting. The moments are passing, passing for you, from you and from me. Shadows are gathering. Deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon. Pardon for you and for me. So come home. Come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly. Tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Why is it that those words some, to some of us feel always, it's like Jesus is begging? Because there's a sense in which Jesus, Jesus is, not, is not pleased with the death of the wicked, it says in another part of Scripture. And, and the reality is that unless they come home, they're lost. Just as unless we came home, we're lost. And, and, and maybe the reason that we don't appreciate that kind of a sense of, of a song, it may, we don't believe this stuff about heaven and hell as much as we should. Maybe that's what's going on. Jesus longs to have fellowship with us, a fellowship that will begin now and will continue throughout eternity. And, and the salvation that he offers is the salvation, is the only salvation that there is, the salvation through Jesus Christ, through his name. And that needs to grip us. That needs to grip us. Jesus calls everyone, including us, to a life of genuine, genuine repentance towards him. And as our so sovereign king, he demands it. But as a bridegroom, he lovingly woos us and urges us to come. The last thing in the passage is verses 20 to 22. calls us to a life of personal fellowship. Personal fellowship. Here we come to the image, that image of the door. Question, what do you do when you get out of the car and you, you go into a friend's house and the door is locked? And, and um, what do you do? Well, in, in the 21st century, many people aren't knocking anymore. You know that? Many people aren't ringing a doorbell anymore. They're grabbing a cell phone. You know that. I'm, how many of you this week have actually knocked on a door? What seems to be happening more and more in our world is that you, that's <laughs> the amen there. More and more of us are, are not knocking on doors or pushing doorbells. We go and we, we get our cell phone and call their cell phone. 
but just what if? Now, now, some of you are young people. Think, what, what is a door knocker? You don't even know what a door knocker is or a doorbell is. You just grab a cell phone. But let's imagine that, you, that, that, that you're out. That the picture here is the, the doors of the church at Laodicea, and Jesus is knocking on the door. And no one, because he wants entrance into, the, into that church, into that fellowship. That's the image that we have here. Now, we don't like pictures of, oh, I had a picture. I can't do the picture, can I? This is a famous picture of Jesus, okay? And in that picture, essentially, there's a, the, 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 door, the doors, you can see a heart. And also, on the, the, uh, 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 there's, there's a, a lack of a handle on the door because the, the door has to be opened up by the one on the inside. Famous picture of Jesus. We can't see it right now. But, that, but that's the image that, that, that Jesus knocked on the door, and, and, and we have the, by, with our wills, are the ones who can open up the door. Notice the words Jesus uses. He says, Come in and eat with you. This is the idea of table fellowship. Of table fellowship. Very significant in the ancient world, and probably in our world today still, but not as much. Fellowship around the table meant you have a relationship of love and respect and mutual affection. You don't eat with your enemies. You don't trust. They may poison the food, you see. No, fellowship. Breaking bread together was a very symbolic activity. And still is, though we don't, don't understand that often. Eating and sharing food is a sign of harmony, of peace, and joy in a relationship. Several weeks ago, we had the, uh, the, the General Assembly of our denomination. The elders from all over the country were in Greensboro, North Carolina. And the theme this year was Come to the Table. There was an intentional decision to create a greater welcome for people of color and for women in our denomination. It was a very important gathering this year. Come to the table. Table, the table. Picture fellowship and joy and reconciliation. Many of you may have, uh, years ago, come across a very significant um, booklet put out by, I think University put this out, called My Heart, Christ's Home. The, the idea is that, that, that as we ask Christ into our life, it's like asking him to come into our house. And in our house, we have various rooms that have symbolic meaning. We have uh, the, the living room where we have just, just uh, interactions. We welcome people. We have, we have a, a, a dining room where we, we, we eat and interact. We have, um, we have various rooms. We have a recreation room. We have your recreation life. And in each of those rooms is symbolic of certain aspects of our life. As Jesus Christ the Lord comes into our life, he comes into our heart. And, 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 and the idea of this wonderful booklet, which is probably about 50 years old by now, um, is that Jesus wants to come into our life. He wants to have a relationship with us. But Jesus, the one who comes into our life, is Lord. He's Lord. And, and, and if he's Lord, then, then he, 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 he has something to say about the different rooms in the house. He has something to say about, about the, our, 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 our leisure life, about our, our study, about our, our, our bedroom, about our kitchen. About, and the, 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 what I like about that little story, I wish I could read it, is this little closet. It's got some skeletons in it. Jesus, don't open that door. Now, my heart, Christ's home. And, and so, so the, 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 the question for every believer, whether you're in Laodicea of the first century, or, or Pen Lucy in the, in the 21st century, is Jesus your Lord? Is he your Lord? Have you, have you given him your heart? Have you given him lordship over you? Because, you see, he really is a Lord. 
He, he is the King of kings. He really is the Lord of lords. And, and joy and peace in eternal life is coming to that recognition that, that, that he can run my life better than I can. So I give it to him. That's what it is. Jesus wants relationship. But Jesus does not want a relationship with us where we're Lord and he's not. You see that? He wants each of us to open the door of our heart, to let him be the Lord of our lives. And that's painful because as he goes into various rooms of our house, we realize that you know, something's not right in that room. I gotta clean that room up a little bit. That's this thing called the Christian life, this journey as we walk with God, as he, through the Holy Spirit, prompts us that something's not right. And you feel uncomfortable. And he says, yeah, because you're not, you don't feel comfortable because something's not right. And we have to repent and come back to him. As lost people turn and repent, they come home. They come to Jesus. And as we repent, we come home. We return to Jesus. And, 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 the, and, and these seven churches, if you don't do that, your lampstand as a, as a community, as a church, will be blown out. The, the, the brightness will no longer shine. The Spirit of God in you will be so dim that people won't even see a difference. Review. Seven churches. It goes back to where he began in the letter. To the Ephesians. He said, it's not about ritual, religious, religious ritual, but it's about a personal relationship. See, he's coming right back to that. It's not about creedal conformity, but it's about personal relationship with him. It's not activity for God, but activity that flows from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Remember the great commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The relationship. How's your, how's your love for God? How's your walk with God? How's your prayer life? Are you taking time with God? Time in his word? Jesus is knocking at the door of each of our hearts. He's not knocking as a beggar or an intruder or a stranger. No. The one who knocks is the owner, <laughs> the Lord, the master, the king, the one who created us, the one who redeemed us and says, I am yours and you are mine. Let's have that relationship where you submit to me and love me as I love you and have died for you. Imagine you're in your house and someone comes in who's a visitor and you have some conflict, you have an argument and that visitor tells you, get out. The visitor tells me, get out of my house. That, that might not work. <laughs> Because I'm the owner of the house. And if anyone's to leave, it's going to be <laughs> the visitor, not the one who's the owner. <laughs> Jesus comes to each one of us. He knocks on the door and says, I own you, you know. <laughs> we were bought with a price. He said in Corinthians, it's a glorified God with your life and your body. See, the the believer says, when he hears the knock, says, yes, Lord, come in. Yes, Lord, come in. There's a pastor's wife in Ireland back in 1852. She was asked by her husband to write a song for his sermon, which was on Mark chapter 1. And, and, and <clears throat> Cecil Francis Alexander wrote the words, God bless many, but now over a century. We'll close with the simple words of this song. Jesus calls us 
over the tumult of life's wild, restless sea. Day by day, his sweet voice soundeth, voice soundeth saying, Christian, follow me. Jesus calls us from the worship of the vain world's golden store, from each idol that would keep us saying, Christian, love me more. In our joys and in our sorrows, days of toil, hours of ease, still he calls in cares and pleasures, Christian, love me more than these. And so Jesus calls us, by thy mercies, Savior, may we hear thy call. Give our hearts to thy obedience so we can serve and love thee best of all. Jesus called the church at Laodicea to repent and follow, and he still does that to this church and to us individually. Repent and follow. Are we repenting regularly? Are we committing ourselves to following him? Calls us. Let's pray. Well, thank you for this, this portion of your word. It's a simple message, and yet it's a hard message, Lord, because <laughs> we're sinners, Lord, and we, and we have remaining sin in our life, and, and, and we love our sin. We love our idols. We love the things in our life that, 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 that give us sometimes too much meaning and too much joy. Thank you for, the, for your Holy Spirit who says, you as ears are here, let him hear, who, 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 who personally tells us the areas of our life that need to be challenged and does that challenging and gives us the freedom to say yes or no to you. Lord, I pray, for, I pray during these moments as we finish this service, Lord, you would speak by your Spirit to believers that are here who, like the people of Laodicea, are apathetic, are in their affluence or just, just running through the motions and aren't really truly excited about you and about your word, about time with you. But to speak to people who are in that situation. Lord, I, I pray for anyone who's here who's going through difficult times, Lord, that they know that, that you, you call us even in those times where, where we doubt you, that you are still the one that we can trust. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. In John 6 it says, Lord, I pray for anyone who's here today who's been hearing your words, been hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ and hearing about this, this great salvation that's, that's offered freely in the gospel and yet has never made the commitment to him. They don't, I think it would be clear to them that, that salvation is simply saying, yes, Jesus, I, I need you. I want to turn. I trust you that you died on the cross for me. And that I don't have to earn my salvation. I don't have to do things to be saved. But I can receive what you did for me that I might be saved. And in that saving have a relationship with you that will last not just now, but throughout eternity. I pray that that, that prayer, that, that, that longing would be in the heart of someone here today, Lord, that you would do that great work. Again, Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the fact that we can call on you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with, um, we don't have a, I love the Lord, you heard my cry. That one? Is that the one? <laughs>